0: Us. he does lead us in good times in hard times and for all time y'all can have a seat well good morning if i haven't met you yet my name is nick na and i'm a supported worker out of Del Rey. it's a real honor to worship the lord with you all this morning this is the part of our service where we worship god through the re- reading the preaching and the receiving of his word So if you haven't been with us this summer, we're going through a series called Stories and Songs." We've been studying specific psalms that were birthed out of stories, real-life stories. So today, we'll be in Psalm 3. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me there, Psalm 3. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take one of those pew Bibles right in front of you as our gift to you, um, and just... You know, I actually made good on that a couple years ago, took a pew Bible for myself. So, if you don't have one, really, it is our gift to you. Please take a Bible with you. Well, at the very top of Psalm 3, you'll find a superscript. It says this, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. This superscript gives us vital background info about the story that led to this psalm being written. So to prepare us to look more deeply at this song, our brother Q Zhang is in a moment going to come up for us and read for us this actual story from 2 Samuel chapter 15. If you want to follow along, you can actually find that in your service guides. But here's some context for what's going on in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Last week, we looked at a real dark moment in David's life. He had forced himself on a woman named Bathsheba, and sin has consequences. And so through the prophet Nathan, God pronounces a judgment on David. Evil will be raised up against David out of his own house because of his sin. Several years pass, David is now an older man, and this judgment comes true in the form of David's son, Absalom. Absalom kills some of David's other sons and then sparks a conspiracy planning to overthrow his father's throne. Absalom even turns David's closest advisors against him, people like Ahithophel, whom you'll see in this passage. So that's where we find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Our brother Q Zhang is going to read that for us.
1: 2 Samuel 15, uh, 1 through 14. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and fifty men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant of, of such and such a tribe in Israel, as Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow, while I lived at Gesher in Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Thank you, Q.
0: Would you all pray with me? Oh, Father, Father, life here is often thorny, uh, filled with thorns for us, God. Um, Betrayal, accusations, um, yeah, pain abounds, and Father, all we're doing before you today, all we're bringing before you is our need, God. That's what we're bringing before you to this morning. We need you, Lord. We need you. I need you, God. So, Father, please, would you open our ears to hear your word that we just sang about that can actually heal our souls. God, help us to actually look to you. Help us to see more of Jesus Through your word this morning, God, would you be a balm to our souls? Um, We ask that you would speak to us. So your words, not mine. Your power, not mine. Your wisdom, not mine. Your glory, not mine. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you've been with us through this summer series, we've seen David walk through all kinds of trials. So what makes this trial different, alarming even, compared to the others? Well, this chapter of David's story is intensely personal. It's his own son Absalom, a son David actually deeply cared about, who has become his enemy. Absalom starts sowing seeds of discord in David's kingdom by posting up at the city gate where disputes would be settled. People would come up to him with their grievances, that's what we just read about, and he'd tell them, man, if I were judge, if I were in power, you'd actually get justice. In this way, Absalom starts to steal the hearts of David's people, so much to the point that by the end of the passage, he's even turned David's closest advisors against him. A rebellion erupts, and David goes on the run think about that. He's on the run from his own son. It's unimaginable. And if that weren't bad enough, it's one thing to have your son turn your back against you. It's another thing to have your son get thousands of people to hate you. This trial is also unique in that the other times David runs for his life, he's been pursued as an innocent man, having done nothing wrong. This time, though, The waters are a lot murkier, is David actually being chased as a consequence of his sin with Bathsheba? Has the Lord actually abandoned David in favor of another? So just imagine the searing pain of betrayal, the mounting fear for his life, and perhaps the nauseating doubt, the sickening sense that maybe… Maybe this time God really has abandoned me. Listen to this from 2 Samuel 15, verse 23. And all the land wept aloud as the people passed by. And the king crossed the, book, the brook Kidron, and all, people, all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And then a couple verses down in verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. Do you see how deeply affected David was by this particular trial? And it's in the middle of all this, as David is weeping in the wilderness, that he cries out to God. So read with me our text for today, Psalm 3, Psalm chapter 3 a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, And he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. In this psalm, we have a thematic arc that rises to the surface. Salvation. That word is repeated twice, first in verse 2 and then in verse 8. And did you catch how different the beginning of the psalm is from the end? In the first stanza, David recounts how many foes are rising against him with a claim. There is no salvation for him in God. And then in the last two stanzas, David prays that God himself would rise, asserting an opposing claim. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Do you see that change? The ark of the Psalms starts with a fearful claim from David's enemies. There is no salvation for him in God. But the last word is David's own proclamation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That last word is the main point of this psalm. So if I could sum up this psalm into one main point, it might be this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So cry out to Him, trust Him, and cast your fears on Him. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So cry out to him, trust him, and cast your fears on him. Following the arc of this psalm, we'll see David go before God in three ways, giving us a model for how we also can approach God in trials. First, grieve your plight before God. Grieve your plight before God. Second, Believe the promises of God. Believe the promises of God. And lastly, plead for protection from God. Plead for protection from God. So we'll work through this psalm in those three parts. Grieve your plight, believe God's promises, and plead for protection. First, when trials come your way, grieve your plight before God. Right from the start, David goes before the Lord, With his dire situation. Notice how the word many is repeated three times in succession, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul. By repeating many, 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 we get the sense that David is feeling overwhelmed by the sheer number of people against him, the thousands of people who are following Absalom to oppose David. Also, the language David employs is intensely personal. It's all in the first person. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul. Can you feel that intensity, the fear and pain emanating from those words? We know from our reading of 2 Samuel that as David is fleeing, he's weeping. He's the kind of sobbing that heaves your entire body. As a king, maybe David expected the greatest threats to his kingdom would come from the outside, from a foreign nation. But here, David's biggest threat is from the inside, from his own kingdom, from his own family. Now, before we consider what exactly David is grieving, think about this question with me for a moment. Why would David bring his fears, maybe even his complaints, we could say, to an omniscient God? I mean, doesn't God already know? He, I mean, surely he knows all the facts. God knows how many are David foes, actually. He knows them down to the number. So why does David cry out to God about something God already knows? On a meta level, I'm, I'm asking basically, why does this text even exist? By the way, just a note here, when you're studying the Bible, it's usually helpful to not just consider what the text is saying, but also why the text exists. Considering why a certain text exists in the first place can often shed light on what the text actually means. So back to this text, why do these words exist? Why is David crying out to God about something God already knows? This struck me as I was meditating on this psalm. Yes, David is writing this song, and his situation is prompting him to write. But who is actually inspiring, guiding David, giving him the precise words write this song? It's God. God himself is the one inspiring David, crafting this song through David. So here's why that's so significant. If God is the one giving words to David's complaint, that must mean God wants to hear David complain. God wants to hear David cry out, grieve, lament to him. And it's not just this psalm, God. Almost all the psalms we've studied this summer have gone have had some form of lament towards God. David has cried out to God over and over and over again, and God has listened every single time. He's never once shut David up. God's not like us. He doesn't get sick of listening. To complaints. See, God in His Word gives space for complaint. More specifically, He gives us words to use in our complaints to Him because, and this is important, because when we cry out to God, especially in our desperation, it's a cry of faith. Think about it. You don't cry to someone you don't believe believe it. Someone you don't trust. You cry out to someone you really trust, who you believe actually exists. I wonder, though, if that sounds a little foreign to you. It definitely does for me. I mean, I often feel like I have to clean up my act, have it all together before I go to God, even before I go to His people like right now even. So what about you? How are you coming into church today? When was the last time you were brutally honest before God? Maybe you're a mom here who just feels the rising pressure to be a super mom. And the swirl of fears is just in your head constantly, that you're just not doing this mom thing right. And honestly, you pray so often with others, with your husband, with your kids, in mom's groups, that it's, you, you barely have time to find time alone with God, to pray, cry out to Him. Or maybe you're in some kind of leadership position at this church, and you really can't let on to other people how you're struggling because, well, isn't your job to help others who are struggling? Maybe your calendar, your schedule feels too crowded for you to dig deep in your struggles before others, especially before God. Or maybe you're single, and you worry that if you don't put on a godly act, if you don't look like you have it all together, if you're not super outwardly holy to others, then you'll never be able to find a spouse. Or maybe all you've known your entire life is stoicism and performance. Maybe you're just all about the head. Struggle can't exist in a logical world of facts. Or maybe you're all about the hands. You know, just pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. And you forget the heart. The heart is foreign to you. You don't even know how to start putting words to the fears of your heart. Friends, friends, Please hear this. No one in here has got it all together. And God not only knows that, He invites that. He invites us to cry out to Him in our struggles. I grew up in a Korean church, and over the years, I've grown in an appreciation for how Koreans lament in church. They they and if you were to walk into a morning prayer at a Korean church early morning before the sun even rises you would hear chuya which is basically lord. It's lord, lord Jesus. And that would be preceded by weeping, lamenting, struggling before the lord, crying out honestly before him. The haunting sound of believers lamenting before God crying out to him in faith became familiar to my ears. What if the practice of lament became more normal in our church here at Delray? I think our faith would grow. We would start to grow an in instinct to cry out to God first when trials come. So Delray family, let's go before God with our raw, honest real feelings, complaints even. God doesn't primarily want your put-together, outward performance. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. And either in this psalm or several others, you can even find language that God graciously gives us to put words to what we feel. Just like David, we really can cry out to God, again and again with our troubles. He invites that. That being said, there's also a guardrail enforced in this text. David is not just bringing some petty complaints before God that are unfounded. He's expressing distress over real trials. We actually see this in the superscript. Do you know that the superscript is also divinely inspired? What that means is if you were to open a Hebrew Bible, the first verse, the first line of this psalm would actually read a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his psalm. God intended to put the superscript there. So once again, why does the superscript exist in the first place? Well, for one, the superscript gives us critical information about who wrote the psalm, David, and when he wrote it, when he fled from Absalom. However, more deeply... I think what this shows is that God cares not just about the expression of the soul, but the exactness of the situation. He cares about both the feelings and the facts. Ponder this with me. Isn't it amazing that in God's Word, we have two accounts of the same event that are both divinely inspired? We have a historical recounting of Absalom's rebellion in 2 Samuel, and we have a poetic expression of David's fears during that same event in Psalm 3. In fact, the superscript in Psalm 3 prompts us to read the history in 2 Samuel. Y'all, we've been doing this all summer. Both 2 Samuel and Psalm 3 are divinely inspired. Now, I think there's a principle for us here. When we're in a hard trial and we're trying to counsel ourselves and each other, I think we we tend to fall into one of two pitfalls. On one side, we can focus too much on the feelings and completely leave out the facts. Imagine if David had written this specific Psalm after someone had made some ambiguous comment to him like, you know, I don't not like your outfit. How many are my foes? You know, that'd, that'd be just wild. It'd be insane. But on the other side, we can also focus too much on the facts and bulldoze over any feelings. Imagine if David had written, there are exactly 1,003 foes against me. That's 500 less than when I faced the Philistine army. So, David, shut your feelings up. You, God already knows this, so you don't need to complain to Focusing too much on the facts can sometimes crowd out a cry of faith towards God. Well, God gives us in His Word a way down the middle to expound the facts and to express the feelings. He cares about both. So, Delray family, once again, this is where you come in, all right? Counsel one another. Some of us really need to hear the facts because we put too much stock on our feelings. And some of us really need to hear what we're feeling. We need help understanding what we're feeling because, honestly, we stifle feelings with, our, with the facts. We need to help each other in this. This is how we lament together. Just a quick word for you here. If you're, if you're here and you might be feeling, man, I, there's nothing really hard going in my life right now. Well, this text is still for you. You might have a season of hardship coming up, or you might have a friend or a family member who's going through something really hard. Are you giving, are you training yourself to help others feel comfortable to to lament towards you? Are you helping others actually in their lament? I mean, God gives us space to lament. Are you giving space to lament for others? I just heard this actually in a quipping hour this morning um, from our brother Jason Engler. He said, in in times of, in wartime, we're preparing for peacetime. Or in in peacetime, sorry, other way around. In peacetime, we're preparing for wartime. So prepare yourself if you're in that season right now where nothing nothing is that bad and help one another. Let's pray that we would be a church that would help one another to stay grounded in truth while also stirring up one another to cry out to God in raw honesty. So we see here David in these verses being brutally honest before God. But what exactly is he afraid of? What's the primary concern of David's heart before God? Verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. What is most troubling to David is not so much his enemies, but their claim. There is no salvation for him in God. When the word salvation appears in the Psalms, it sometimes means a physical deliverance, meaning literal deliverance from life-threatening danger. Other times, the, the word salvation is used for spiritual salvation, meaning deliverance from God's wrath. Well, I think here, David's enemies are employing both meanings of the word. They're saying, look at the state of his kingdom, how his people, his own son, have turned against him. He's dead meat. And also, look at his soul. Did you catch that? My soul. There is no salvation for his soul in God. God has abandoned him. A form of this phrase in verse 2 is actually recorded in 2 Samuel 16. As David is passing by, Shimei, a relative of Saul's, hurls stones at David and shouts at him, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the, the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See your evil is on you for you are a man of blood shimmy essentially says there is no salvation for you in god just like your son just like your people god has also turned his back on you david seems to be hearing those words ringing in his ears did this happen because i was a bad leader a bad dad did God really abandon me? Is this all my fault? Did my sin disqualify me from God's salvation? Is there really no salvation for me in God anymore? I can imagine that for some of you here, you've also had those same questions ringing in your ears. You might not have had people verbally mocking you But that phrase, there is no salvation for me in God, has often plagued your thoughts. Some of you might feel that you've sinned way too much, gone way too far to really be saved by God. You might even conceptually believe in God's salvation, but practically, you functionally believe that He's abandoned you. Do you now see why this mocking claim of David's enemies is so piercing, so personal? It's actually an assault on what David most essentially believes about himself and about God. So what do we do with these kinds of assaults? What does David do? Part two, believe the promises of God. Believe the promises of God. With his own son out to murder him, with thousands of enemies mounting against David, with their mockery ringing in his ears, in the midst of all that noise, David cries out in verse three, But you, O Lord. This is a cry of faith. David is shouting out to God. In the first two verses, we spent a considerable time lingering on David's lament how that should prompt us to be honest before God with our complaints. But the Scriptures don't just end there with us venting before God. They turn us around and lift our gaze with eyes of faith to behold God and His goodness in the midst of rising darkness. Grieving should lead to believing. And listen, that sequence, that order, really matters. You know, a close friend of mine once told me this, that there's a difference between saying, God, I know this and that about you, but life is hard. It feels like you're not here. What's going on? There's a difference between that and saying, God, life is really hard right now. I don't know where you are. It feels like you're gone, but but I know you're there but I still believe. The former shows a heart of cynicism, while the latter shows a heart of faith. We want hearts that cry out, but God, not but suffering. And y'all, I, I really get this. There are some moments in my life when people have quoted Scripture to me in my suffering, wanting to do me good, wanting me to be healed. And I've lashed out with, man, I know all that. I know all that about God, but just shut up and listen to me vent. I've had to repent of that. And I've also had to painstakingly learn how to, how to switch that order around. To, you know life is really hard right now. And my experience doesn't line up with what you're telling me from Scripture. But you're right. You're right. I believe that God, I still believe that God is good somehow. See, the former uses suffering as a lens to view God. But the latter has God as the lens to view suffering. Using suffering as a lens to view God will only distort the truth and lead to despair. But viewing suffering through God, viewing suffering through his promises, his character, his word, will put suffering in its right place and lead to hope. And this is what David does in the middle two stanzas. After grieving his plight before God, David asserts what he believes about God's character. Notice that David first recalls God's present character. You are a shield about me. Then he moves on to God's past faithfulness. Did you catch all those past tense verbs? I cried. He answered. I laid down, slept, woke. He sustained. And then in light of all of that, God's past and present character, David looks to the future. Verse 6, I will not be afraid. David looks to what he believes about who God is for all time, present, past, and future. So let's take a closer look at each one of these. Well, first, David looks to the past. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Now, that's interesting. Out of all the words David could have chosen, he picked a shield why? Well, maybe as a man of war, David would have known how critical a shield was for protection from deadly attacks. David is saying that God is his protector. However, I think David here is intentionally pulling the image of a shield not from his own experience as a soldier, but from God's own exposition of himself in Scripture. In the Bible… The first time God is described as a shield occurs in Genesis chapter 15, when God makes a covenant with Abraham. Listen to this from Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Notice, who describes God as a shield? himself, God himself. God reveals himself as a shield in the midst of Abram's fears. So in the midst of David's fears, when his vision of God might have been obscured by the taunts of his enemies, where does David go? He goes to God's own word, what God reveals about himself, a promise to be a shield to his covenant people. David is saying, God, this is who you said you are. You said you're a shield to your people. And I believe that you're the same God still, based on your own word. Friends, when trials come your way, don't let your suffering, your experience, color what you believe about God. Rather, go to God's word. Trust what God has to say about himself. After describing God as a shield, David then calls God my glory. David believes that all the glory he had as a king was all from God. David's supreme glory is God himself. Although David is currently stripped of earthly glory, a kingdom ripped out of his reign, David asserts that God himself is his glory. And then David describes God as the lifter of my head. Oh, friends, do you, do you hear how sweet those words are? The lifter of my head. God is not just a concrete, inanimate shield. He's not just an abstract, conceptual thing about glory. God is intimately, personally real. In another psalm, Psalm 34, David says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Y'all, that's our God, the lifter of the brokenhearted. So as David David's enemies are rising around him. And as David's head is heavy, cast down in weeping, God is the one who gently lifts, gently raises David's head. And where does God lift David's gaze? To his holy hill, a place where God has answered David and passed faithfulness. Verse three, I cried aloud to the Lord and, and, and he answered me from his holy hill. Think about all the times David cried out to God throughout his life. I mean, this summer, we've looked at David crying out to God in Psalm 59, Psalm 34, Psalm 56, Psalm 52, Psalm 54, Psalm 57, Psalm 30, Psalm 60, and 51. And every single time, God not only heard David, but answered him. In this verse, God's holy hill specifically refers to Jerusalem. But more importantly, I think what David is getting at here is that every time David cried out to God, God would condescend, lower himself from his elevated position to answer David. Another psalmist says in Psalm 116, he inclined his ear to hear me. He bends, he bends down to hear us. If you're a Christian here, listen to this. God has never turned a deaf ear on you. We just sing about that in dear refuge of my weary soul. He has never gone tired of you hearing you cry out to him. He has never rolled his eyes in annoyance at you. Even for the countless times you've you've complained to him, God instead has bent down towards you lovingly at inconvenience to himself to answer you. That's amazing. And in verse 4, David gives us proof of that, of God's past faithfulness, that God did actually hear him and answer. He said, you want proof? Well, here it is. Now, think about this with me for a second. If you were David and you had to pull out past evidence of God's faithfulness in your life, where would you point? Maybe you'd point to your victory over Goliath with the sling. Or maybe you'd point to all the times Saul missed throwing his spear at David. Not once, not twice, but three times. I mean, the man must have had terrible aim. You could point to so many epic saves, times when God really showed up in force. Well, where does David point as evidence of God's faithfulness? Verse 4, I laid down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Why would David point to the simple, mundane act of sleep as proof that God sustains him? Consider this with me. Sleep is one of those things we do every day that we actually can't control, right? Like, you can't. You can control the environment around which you sleep, but you can't actually force yourself to fall asleep. I've tried. You can, you know, you get, and you can't you can't just fall asleep. And also, while you're sleeping, you're the most vulnerable. You're in the most vulnerable state. Even the strongest people in the world are powerless when they're fast asleep. The Think about this, you can't even wake yourself up. I know because I work in college ministry. There, <laughs> you, you have to rely on external sources like alarms or people to wake you up. On a deeper level, though, you actually have to rely on God for every time you fall asleep and wake up. God is the one who is actually in control. He's the one keeping your heart beating right now, and he's also the one who causes us to fall asleep, to rest, and to wake up. You know what that means? I did some quick math here. That means Tyler Ray, God has been merciful to you over ten thousand three hundred sixty times. That's roughly the number of light of nights you've lived since you were born. Chadwick, God has been merciful to you over 11,560 times. And Merck, 18,130 days of mercy. You might sleep twice a day. I don't know. It's a lot more. And sisters, for some reason, I didn't get exact numbers, but God has been also merciful to you. All of you young at heart, you know? Uh, and he knows how, the number. Anyway, so <laughs> now maybe those numbers just flew over your head, but the point is this that God has been so unimaginably merciful to you. Do you realize there has never been a day, there has not been a single day in your life, a single moment. When God has not shown you mercy, never. For all the times we sin against Him, He's never not shown you mercy. If you slept last night, there's your proof. You know, this verse here is an amazing one to pray every morning you wake up. Weave it into your morning routine with your family, with your kids, by yourself, with your roommates to remind yourself that God has sustained you yet again in his mercy for another day. And even if you struggle with sleeplessness, I know that's hard. That's one of the hardest hardest things. I love sleep. When you can't sleep, it's so hard. Know that for as little sleep as you've gotten, every minute was a mercy from God. You know, there's something wonderfully refreshing, something really powerful about God's faithfulness in the ordinary. You don't have to look to defeating Goliaths as the only evidence of God's presence in your life. Sometimes it's the smallest things, like sleeping or having having a meal. I love food. You know, like breathing that speak the loudest. So in the middle of one of the most intense trials in David's life, David looks to how he was able to sleep, how he's not killed in the middle of sleeping, how God really sustained him. And then in verse 6, in light of God's present character and past faithfulness, David looks where to the future. He says, "I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David declares that he will not be afraid of his enemies all around him because God is a shield about him. David is believing here in God's future protection based on God's present and past protection. David can say this not because he has a sense of control over his situation— but precisely the opposite. David can say this even though thousands of people are out to get him. He can say this because God is in control. See, in the midst of our fears, our human what's our human tendency? We try to control them. We try to crowbar our situation into submission, right? Well, the Bible tells us to not control our fears, but to cast our fears on God, to trust him with them. 1 Peter 5 tells us this, to cast our fears on him because he cares for us. So after David grieves his plight before God in the first stanza, he then turns to God with his fears and believes in him afresh. Now, before we move on, I want to acknowledge something here. Sometimes, the gap between verse 2 and verse 3, between grieving and believing, feels massive, insurmountable. I've been in the same fellowship group for over four years now, I think actually five. And some time ago, the men in our group Uh, decided to meet every other Monday night and we would meet to uh, what I would call dump the trash to share with each other all our sins and all our struggles. And I mean all of them. In those four years, we grieved all kinds of plights. Miscarriages, continual body injuries, death in families, Opposition from non-Christian family members, opposition from Christian family members, faith-compromising situations at work, exhaustion, close friends renouncing Jesus, depression, and even the kind of struggle we find here in this psalm, real doubt as to whether there was salvation for us in God. And sometimes on a Monday night, in those two to three hours, y'all, we weren't able to get from grieving to believing. Sometimes it would take weeks, months even. You see, saying, but you, O Lord, sometimes takes a lot of time and a lot of patience, a lot of enduring with one another, sometimes for years. But here's what I can tell you after four years of walking with these brothers. God rewards patience. We strove to be brutally honest with each other, to be patient with each other. And although we didn't do it every Monday we met, we strove to remind each other to cry out to God, cry out, but God, and believe afresh in God's present, past, and future faithfulness. And for every single trial, every single one of them, God has worked a miracle in our hearts. What's that miracle? He worked a miracle for us to actually be able to believe afresh again in His goodness. They're still here with me. They're listening to this right now, some of them. I'm so thankful for you, brothers. Listen, some of you right now are located in that gap between verse 2 and 3, that in-between space between grieving and believing. And maybe you've been there for a while. Oh, but hear me on this. No matter how long it takes... No matter what it takes, just try. Try to follow up your grieving with believing. Bridge the gap. Turn to who God is because he really does care for you right now. He really is the lifter of your head. So let's take a step back and look at what we've covered so far, the two claims being made in this psalm. In the first stanza, David hears his enemies saying, there is no salvation for him in God. In the next two stanzas, David basically declares, there is salvation for me in God. Do you hear the difference in emphasis between those two claims? In the first claim, where's the emphasis? There is no salvation for him in God. And in the second claim, where's the emphasis? There is salvation for me in God. See, the first, the first claim, there is no salvation for him in God. The emphasis is on David, David's situation, maybe even David's sin. But the second claim, there is salvation for me in God. Where is the emphasis? It's on God. In this claim, salvation is dependent not on man, but on God. And that's why David is able to plead so boldly before God. Part three, plead for protection from God. Plead for protection from God. Notice how what David believes informs what he pleads. Look with me again at verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David pleads with God to rise to action against his rising enemies because he believes God is a shield around him because he believes God is his protection, because he believes God is far higher than David's enemies, far more powerful. David pleads with God to save him because he believes salvation belongs to God. Now, David says that God strikes all the enemies of the Lord's anointed on the cheek so hard that he breaks their teeth. The image given here is defanging a beast, a wild beast, completely removing their teeth. What do you do when you remove a wild beast's beast teeth? You remove their power. You know what animals without teeth are? They're Muppets. And the wicked ain't getting any retainers, you know? Here's what David is essentially saying. Just as salvation belongs to the Lord, judgment also belongs to the Lord. You go against the Lord's anointed, You go go against God's people, it means you're going to go against God himself. No one can stand against the Lord and those who are his. David's pleas before God comes straight out of what he believes about God. There's an application for us here. Our own pleas toward God should be informed not just by the trials we grieve, but by the truth we believe. When fears are rising before you, bring before God both your pain and His promises and plead boldly for His protection. Now, here's the most astounding plea David makes. It's in the final verse of this song. Your blessing be on your people. What? What? How could this be? I mean, really think about that. Although David's own people have betrayed him, so much to the point that you think there's no turning back. I mean, literally thousands of people. In the middle of that searing betrayal, David prays, pleads with God to bless his people. Y'all, I think what we're seeing here is a picture of grace, a foreshadowing of a greater king to come who would bless people even as they cursed him. See, in King David, in this expression of his experience was actually a foreshadow to King Jesus, the true and greater Son of God. Like David... Jesus also had many foes, many enemies, rise up against him from his own people. Like David, Jesus also had someone extremely close to him, Judas, one of his 12 disciples, betray him. And you know where David goes? You know where he flees to weep? He flees across the brook Kidron to the Mount of Olives. Well, like David, Jesus also, in John 18, fled across the brook Kidron to the Mount of Olives and grieved there, weeping before God, crying out to him. And like David, Jesus also had his enemies mock him. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 42 and 43, it says this, his enemy said, he saved others he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Sound familiar? There is no salvation for him in God is what they're saying. But this is the point where the comparisons between David and Jesus start to diverge. For Jesus, in his darkest hour, God the Father was not a shield, but instead a cup of foaming wrath that Jesus drank down to the dregs. For Jesus, his glory was traded for shame as he hung naked from a cross. For Jesus, as he hung nailed to the cross, his head was not lifted up but was bowed down with the weight of sin, the weight of our sin. And for Jesus, when he cried aloud to God the Father from the cross, he was answered on that hill, not in mercy, but in holy wrath, the wrath we deserve for our sins. And then Jesus died And miraculously, in three days, he rose again, for he had been sustained. And when he rose, he beat death, defamed death and sin, and removed its sting, its threat, and its power for anyone who would repent of their sin and believe in his name. Friends, here is a wondrous thing to behold. In this psalm, God not only invites us to cry out to him about our trials, but God himself enters into our trials. Y'all, this is absolutely wild. Jesus, the Son of God, condescends all the way to become one like us, to subject himself to the same kinds of sufferings we endure, to feel what it's like to have enemies and fear rise against him, and to ultimately save us out of that condemnation that we rightly deserve. Jesus fills the frame of this psalm. He completes the arc of this psalm. We have a Savior who not only invites us to grieve, but also grieves with us. We have a Savior who proves through his own sacrifice for us that we really can believe in God. And we have a Savior who pleads on our behalf, who goes before God and pleads mercy and blessing for us. If you're here and wouldn't call yourself a Christian, first of all, I'm so thankful you're here. I'm so thankful you came out today. And I want to ask you, where is your salvation We've all sinned against God and that makes us His enemies deserving His wrath. But here's good news for you. Salvation belongs to Jesus, not your sin. He owns it, not you, not anything else. And He offers the blessing of salvation to His enemies, even sinners, like all of us. All it takes Is your turning away from your sin and turning to Jesus in faith? You can do that right now. I'd urge you to do that right now. There is a God who wants your heart, who wants to lift your head so that you might see Him. If you have any questions about that, please stick around after. Talk to any of our members here around. There's even a prayer room right after the service that you can go to and ask for prayer and just process this. For those of you here who are Christians, salvation really belongs to Jesus. It really does. It doesn't belong to you, your performance, your sin, or even your situation. It belongs to God. Jesus stands as a greater David, a greater sinless king for us, who intercedes for us, who prays that blessing would be on us, even when we often betray him in our sin. And because Jesus stands in our place, for us before God, we can actually go boldly before God. Go boldly before his holy hill, like David did, and grieve before him, believe yet again in him, and plead with him. So turn to God in times of trouble. Bring your honest complaints to Him. Let the Psalms fill your language. Grieve your plight before Him. And remind yourself of who God is, who He's been, and what He he will do. Ask each other, what do you believe about God? What's what's beautiful about Jesus for you today? During lunch, believe afresh in the promises of God. And lastly, ask God to keep sustaining you to help you see more of your salvation secured in Jesus, plead for protection from God. Salvation belongs to Jesus, so trust Him. So cry out to Him, trust Him, and cast your fears on Him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Father, we really believe that you're listening to this right now, this prayer right now. And some of us, God, are in that space between verse two and three. We're in between grieving and believing. God, would you turn their hearts to believe again in you afresh? Help them to bring their complaints before you, to believe in you, to plead with you. And God, help those of us here who aren't in a particularly hard place right now to help others around us, to ask good questions, to listen to one, well to one another, to give, us, to give one another space to cry out to you. Oh, Father, we ask that, that you would fill our language with your word, with your psalms. And Jesus, we, we pray that you would come soon. Would you come soon? And until, if you do, Terry, until that day, Lord, we pray that you'd help us endure to the end.